Welcome to... Oh, wait. The microphone's supposed to be in front of me. That's right. Keep forgetting that. This is the Arts Report with Jake Clark and Ileana Souza. Hey. Uh, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC. And we're going to start off right away with an interview currently ringing in from Celeste Snober. Let me just see if I can get this right. Hello? Hello? Celeste, are you here? Are you with us? Hi, this is Celeste. Yes, this is Celeste Snober. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Can't complain. Can't complain. For once, technology is on my side. We'll see how long oh, that lasts. It's very rare. <laughs> could you could you speak up a little, or could you? Um... I can. I can speak up a little. Is that better? That's good. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, very excellent. very good uh, fidelity there. Yes. Okay. Good. So now, Celeste, we understand that you uh, have a show that we are we were very interested in, and that we are actually yes. going to review at a later date. Oh yay! Perfect yes, imperfections. The Art yes. of a Messy Life. Exactly. The Art of a Messy Life. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? Could you give us a sort yes. of a pitch for it? Well, um, uh, The Art of a Messy Life is basically we all have a mess. And we have been passionate about creating in the mess no matter what. And I've been always quite fascinated by what perfect means. And really perfect comes from the root word that means wholeness, which is totally opposite than perfect. And so... We have these multiple lives with many threads and many possibilities and many difficulties. And so a lot of it is what does it mean to create out of that mess? And what, it, what does it mean to create in our imperfections and our losses and our joys and our difficulties um, and different notions of how we live and be in our bodies? Well, that's interesting because when you say that everyone has a perfect mess, you know, I usually just call it a radio show. I love it, you see, but the radio show is spectacular. And so that's the whole point of it. Most people that are really creative know that behind it is a little bit of a mess. We, we have to play with a mess. It doesn't mean we don't have form or we don't attune it or edit it, but you have to, you have to mess around. You have to be playful. Well, for those who have been listening to my show for a while, uh, it, it does sometimes mean that we, we like, but let's not dwell on that. Yes, Never say that's die okay. at all. That's okay. A beautiful mess. That's okay. And in this particular instance, it's actually quite a diverse show in that vein. It it's got is. music, comedy, dance. Yeah. Oh, and many kind and different kinds of music. There's Jody, who is a, is a bass player, Juno nominated. Um, Alexa is a classical harp player, but she's doing a, all this incredible improv. We have Catherine Penfold, who's a vocalist. I do dance, as well as comedy, spoken word, poetry. I kind of combine those forms all together into one. At times, I do a lot of speaking and dancing at the same time. So then you have all of this together. So it, somehow it's been actually quite glorious working together. We really have enjoyed working together in the rehearsal creating. That's very interesting. What kind of uh, musical style would you say uh, results from that? Is it sort of a jam band kind of thing? I wouldn't call it a jam band. I would say it's a fusion of elements. Um, I mean, there is definitely some pieces that are on Jody's recent album, Sun Song. Um, I mean, there is a jazz element um, for sure. But when you bring a harp in into it, it's, it has a different color to that. And then when you add the layers on of it, it's like poetry and and music or speaking um, spoken word and dance and comedy in between. It's a, it becomes a really, um, it's a hybrid mix, and I'm not sure what you would call it. Well, whenever there's um, a harp in the there. Whole part of it. Yeah, I think that's the whole part of it. We, we don't always have names for everything, you know. Well, there's two ways you can go with a harp. Is Joanna Newsom or the Marx Brothers? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I think that it's, it's really quite beautiful. Um, it's, yeah, I don't. I'm not the musician, so maybe they, Jody or Alexa would um, be able to speak to more of the nuances. But it's definitely this 
there's pieces that are very blues, there's pieces that are jazz, there's there's a there's a Benjamin Britten piece in the middle of it. It's, really? it's like quite a variety. Yeah. But it, it there's an arc. It all it, it connects. It's just And sort of the impetus of this show, as as we've been informed, is this uh, sort of unfortunate statistic that 25% of teens uh, are, are dissatisfied with their bodies and uh, one in five women mm-hmm. report the same. And that yeah. is sort of the uh, the driving message of this is that sort yeah. of personal positivity? Yeah, I wouldn't phrase it like that. It's not how I would articulate it, but I think the media is articulating those things in that way and that's probably what they picked up on. But it, it is uh, it definitely addresses that because I'm very... Um, passionate about what it means to live and be in our bodies more from the inside out than the outside in. And we have been really colonized and marginalized by having the gaze and what, and this is women and men about our bodies, how, you know, how big they have to be, how firm they have to be. And so we have forgotten the body intelligence inside us. We have actually dumbed down our absolute innate brilliance, the places of our deep wisdom and our deepest sensuality. So we have forgotten the joy of living to our senses which what it means to be be in a body and through a body. It's like we have, it's kind of like we have a GPS, living GPS is free, but we, we don't pay attention to it because we're so in our, our culture is so much emphasis on the head and also about controlling the body, um, not necessarily seeing the body as a place of listening. And so if you shift out your perception and how you live in your body, that shifts how you feel inside your body, and, you're, and, and it, it shifts your perception. Now, that's very interesting considering the nature of the show, like musical musical nature, performance nature, because uh, it seems like there, there's a tie between that and with this, this sort of wellspring of uh, expression. Is that what mm-hmm. you're trying to sort of invoke with that? I think that by living fully out loud, um, you, you invoke incredible expression. But I think the whole point of it is that you have to create even out of the mess. So I'm 62 years old, still dancing. I have a knee replacement and injuries. And so um, I, I continue on. Or there's other, other issues that someone else might have in the show dealing with a loss. Or, so the point is, I think, is to create out of, out of the very existence, our lived existence, our lived, the lived curriculum of, of whatever arises in our life, rather than going over it. So it's like inhabiting fully who we are, both the joys and the sorrows sort of make make uh, make what you can from what you got. Yes, instead of making lemons out of lemonade, it's making art out of a mess. That's interesting. Well, it's, you know, you can do a lot with lemons, but as long but yeah. if you don't have sugar and ice, that lemonade is going to be a little yeah. sour. Yeah. Well, perhaps, but some of us like sour too. True. <laughs> some of us like juicy. <laughs> True. Or you know, you do like Tyler mm-hmm. the creator throw the lemons at pedestrians, or you go like Ron yeah. White, you know, you find someone to whom life has given vodka and then have a party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot of great sayings about that, lemon-wise. Yeah, now, yeah. I, I do want to touch on briefly, because you have a connection to UBC um, in that you were an I artist do. in residence uh, with uh, yes. the UBC Botanical Garden. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, it's been, it was an amazing. I was the last two years, I've been the artist in residence in the Botanical Gardens and creating dance and poetry out of each season, working with the curators and the sustainability educator and creating um, out of each season and bringing, bringing the public through these kind of performances of dance and poetry connected to the, connected to the flora and the trees. It's been an amazing experience. 
because that's very interesting because well one of the things we're going to cover a little later in the show is um the uh is the uh, film about Andy Goldsworthy. Oh, and, well in some ways I do I another part of my work is, is very site specific work and I'm kind of but I just do it in dance and movement and poetry instead of doing it um visually but it's very similar it's about listening to the land you know Andy Goldsworthy works in a very kind of contemplative, mindful way where he listens. And it's impermanent. Performance is impermanent. It's there and it's gone. His works are spectacular, but they, they're out of creation, but they've been gone. So they're, 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 how he utilizes time is really interesting. And so that's a site-specific performer. We, we deal with time and the natural world, um, how it shifts and changes and bring that into the canvas of creation. And that's kind of interesting in the context of this show because uh, I don't know, I, I didn't garner this, but is this show, how much of this is improvisational? Well, I think the creative process comes out of improvisational. And so now, because yeah, we have worked on it for, for months, we, there's an arc of the show, there's certain pieces that we're doing, but there still is, um, and, and certain scores that have now almost been written, but there's still improvisation within that. And for me, I'm, I'm a lover of improvisation, so it shifts. It will shift every night. To, you know, the audience. I, it's a co-creation, so it will shift a little bit every night, and there will be improvisation within it as well. This sort of uh, well, you mentioned jazz as an influence. Is it mm-hmm. like that? Is it yeah. like sort of that kind of performance? Yeah. That's well, you always... know, yeah. I mean, Jody is a jazz, an amazing jazz musician, um, one of the foremost in Canada, and so um, I, I don't play um, jazz, but my body. My body is like that in some ways because I, I, you have a form, but then you can depart from the form. And that's the nature of improvisation. It means to play and shift form. So there is room for that. And with, with shows like this, with sort of, would you call this a variety show, maybe? No, because a variety show is a bunch of things that don't necessarily have any connection. This has an arc. This has a middle. This has a beginning. This has a thread. The threads are very carefully... Woven together as well, we also have the director, Lynn Fells, who's really paid attention to those transitions and nuances. So it isn't a variety show, but it is hybrid. So it's multidisciplinary. There's a multidisciplinary form, but it, it, it's not um, haphazard. Or there's no sense from one piece to the other. It's very carefully, one piece leads into the other, one piece prepares for the other. We take you on a journey. We hopefully will take the audience on a journey, and it will be a very different journey for each person. A very sort of continuous uh, kind of uh, show. In some ways, sort of yeah. A, a through line, sorry. Yes. That was not yes. terribly well yes, articulated. Yes, it is. I think, I, think, I think so, yes. And there's through lines, and I think there's themes that emerge. But I always like the audience, because I like the reader, to be able to participate. And hopefully, um, you know, the, the like I only can tell my story. So in some ways, it's autobiographical, but... There's a relationship between your story and my story, in the personal and the universal, um, in 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 what that what that means in terms of art and autobiography. Well, that's very interesting in this light because there's definitely a lot of abstraction in this. I'm assuming based on the song titles like "Funeral for a Superwoman" uh, mm-hmm. and the spirituality of worry. And unless... I teach the audience how to worry. Just to, I could teach you quickly as well, in case you don't know. But yes. Hmm? I do teach the audience how to worry at some point. Oh, well, that's, I, I tell you, it's, uh, you know, you're talking about the media there. I think that that's kind of a side effect of having a news feed. Mm-hmm. You, get, you get a crash course in right. suspended panic. <laughs> that's 
exactly. And yeah. um, there's also mentions here of a show that you have previously done with Miss Prosnick mm-hmm. um, uh, called Women, Woman Giving Birth to a Red Pepper. Yes, we did that in 2013, yeah. Would you like to explain that at all or just let the title yeah, stand for well, itself? No, no, it's kind of hard to... Um, it re- that, that show came out of... Um, that was our first big collaboration and it, 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 it addressed themes as sexuality, uh, the juiciness of being in midlife, dating online, you know, the multiple roles we live as raising children. There was a lot of... It was just a lot of comedy in that as well. Um and so it really was about living a juicy, sensuous life, that theme, which is a, a bit of a theme of my own work um, in, in, in the entire show. And that's, well, that's certainly very interesting. And, and, and if you don't mind me asking, just mm-hmm. where, where, where does the red pepper come in? Well, because my mother always made me look at those red peppers and said, oh, look how glorious and sensuous they are. So let's look at the curves and the light and, <laughs> and the color. How could you, you have to cook with color. How could you not cook with color? So it was inbred in me in an early, she was an artist, but it was inbred in me that all so. of life is sensual. Every piece of fruit and vegetable. She was Armenian. You know, in certain cultures, like all vegetables are erotic. So I just, I kind of grew up with it. And as I aged, I just realized that, yeah, you're right. Vegetables are erotic. They're beautiful. They're stunning. And we see the vegetable is beautiful and stunning. And we don't, we're not so concerned about the exact shape. But why is it as human beings, we have to be only one shape? Why can't we enjoy the beauty of of who we deeply are? Hmm. That's a, that's a compelling conclusion to draw from the eroticism of bell peppers. Yes. Well, that that uh, that that sounds certainly like a, a terrific performance rationale, as does Perfect Imperfections. Can you let our audience know where and when they could catch it? It's at the Vancouver East Cultural Center, June 14th, 15th, and 16th. Excellent. And, yeah. uh, oh, Celeste, it was great to have you on the show. Okay, thank you so much. It was a delight to talk to you. Yeah, and and we'll, we'll certainly enjoy taking it in ourselves. Okay, thank you so much. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. I, I do want to say that that was I, I was not expecting the bit about the red pepper. That was a really amazing kind of analogy. It was. It really was. I mean, now now I'm just thinking about the poetics of Armenian cooking. <laughs> Which, there's got to be something there. Um, we're gonna take a short uh, PSA break. When we return, we shall have. Uh, I'll see if I can play uh, a little bit of Miss Prosnick's uh, album Sun Songs. Uh, the number listen. Uh, when we return, we shall have Andrea Fainsfeld in here to talk about uh, her new book. Um, see you soon. Yes. 
magazine from CITR has been documenting the best in music, arts, and culture since 1983. Let's see what one man of prestige has to say about Discorder. What up, though? This is Big Snoop Dogg, and I fucks with Discorder magazine. How about that? <laughs> Smoke beef every day. Pick up a copy around Vancouver or f with Discorder online at discorder.ca. Are you looking for a volunteer opportunity that fits your schedule? Being a big sister takes less time than you think, and you can choose the volunteer opportunity that fits your life. Spend just one hour a week as a study buddy, tutor, or two hours a week as a big sister. Check out the various mentoring programs at Big Sisters of BC Lower Mainland and find a volunteer position and a little sister that will suit you to a T. Visit bigsisters.bc.ca for more information today. And that's how Louis Armstrong got weed across the border. There is context to that. It's a terrific story, but we do not have time now. Um, joining us in the studio is Andrea Fains. Fains, Fains, Fains that's all, folks. Fains and Feld. Sorry. Oh, hold on. Helps when your mic's on. Ah, uh, there we go. And I've, I've done that so many times accidentally with correspondents. I like, had the wrong mic on. Yep, Ileana. Yep. yep I feel I that. <laughs> no. You, I think Lua got the worst of it. The mic was off, but the other one was on, so it sounded like she was whispering. <laughs> yeah, I the remember entire that. Time. Dead space on CITR. It wasn't dead space. <laughs> it just sounded like it was a really bad NPR impression. Like, oh, oh hello. no, just now gonna, you're slagging NPR. What's next? Talk a little bit. Except Ileana was talking at normal voice, but her voice <laughs> is really distant, so it sounded like we were recording her at the bottom of a well. <laughs> Oh, you know. <laughs> and then I uh, was doing a John Lee Hooker impression at one point because that was an awkward show. Yep, that's just how it is on here. <laughs> Nothing but fun and games. So you wrote a book. Yay, Yay me. <laughs> Segway. Segway. Uh, this uh, sounds like a very fascinating book. It's called Completion, I believe. Correct. And could you give us sort of an elevator pitch? Could you unpack it a little bit? Sure. I mean, the story follows this uh, pyromaniac who's who's troubled, and when we first meet him in the story, he's on the run, driving in New Mexico, and, and we don't really know what's happened. And through an unexpected event, he ends up on this mysterious cult compound. And of course, to make the story even better, he doesn't really realize where he is at first, and he ends up getting stuck between these two feuding members who both believe that he's the missing link that they've been waiting for, for very different reasons. Ah, Ooh, that sounds so good. And this is um, the the cult story. It uses a, um, how would you say, a shamanic bent to it? Yeah, I mean, when I first came up with the concept, I knew I didn't want to do the cult based on any kind of religion for originality purposes. And we talked about this earlier. I felt that the religious approach had been done before. People knew Waco. They knew about Jonestown. It wasn't really fresh. So when I was thinking about the cult, it's probably the biggest creative decision I had to make for the book because it couldn't just be like, oh, there's my idea, splat against the wall. It really had to pull triple duty. It had to make sense for the story. It had to work into the character's journey and also had to reflect the theme of the story. How did you go about researching it? What kind of uh, shamanic traditions did you draw from? Well, I actually did quite a bit. I mean, I when I uh, chose shamanism because the story is set in New Mexico, it made sense because part of the group that's following this leader is sort of a rogue group of Native Americans. And shamanism is, of course, huge in Native American culture. 
so that's how where I kind of focused my attention on. So I did research at the library, and the the tribe that I actually based it on is the Hickory Apaches in New Mexico. And during my research, I spent quite a bit of time in New Mexico and traveled to meet the cultural director of that tribe. And it was a really fascinating uh, afternoon that I spent with him. What'd you, did, you, did you tell him up front that you're looking to model a cult on this? Because <laughs> I didn't necessarily say that, but I did tell him that I was writing a story and I wanted to be sort of reflective and honest about what was going on in their, in their culture and their traditions. But it was really interesting because we talked a lot about, you know, their history and, and their culture. But when we got to the concept and the, the topic of shamanism, this kind of weird hush came over the room. And he became very sort of cloaked in mystery. And it made me realize, you know, how much reverence they give to this. Because, for lack of a better term, a shaman in a tribe is almost like a psychiatrist. And you go to them with all the, your sort of demons and your troubles. And they kind of exercise them. So it's a very personal process. Sort of a priest in an apothecary. Sort of exactly. Thing. But way cooler because it deals with the underworld and psychedelics. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like a uh, little, like, uh, little few peyote buttons. In the, in the prescription there? Well, and that's what kind of attracted me to it, because as a writer, when I'm coming up with elements or choices for stories, I want to have something that gives me the widest birth to create from, which is another reason why I didn't want to go with a religion, because I felt I would be sort of hemmed in with coming up with a lot of rules and doctrines, which would take a lot of my time with not necessarily a bigger creative payoff, but with um, these unprotectable elements like the underworld and psychedelics, I mean, the world's my oyster. I was giving a lot of free free reign to create from. Because, like, in in the desert, right, it gets it gets weird out there. Like, when you ingest some powerful stuff and then go out into this really beautiful but also really scary part of the world. Absolutely. And, well, one of the things that happens with Native American cultures is a lot of times when they do these ceremonies, they're actually underground in these rooms, these things called kivas, which a lot of people don't know about. And they're very, they're very sacred, um, the kind of pits in the ground. And that's where these things take place a lot of times. Like, I imagine pretty dark, pretty echoey acoustics. It's absolutely sort of perfect. It's kind of like the studio. Exa- well, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly what we should do. Ileana, fetch the mescaline. Uh, right away. Out, black out those windows. And whereupon I lose all of my insurance and then finally turn into Hunter S. Thompson. I have his hairline, so there's that. <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, you know, shamanism was cool, and it's also mysterious. People don't really know a lot about it, and it's been in the press a little bit recently with a lot of um, sort of these ayahuasca retreats that are going on, which I don't necessarily think are the best thing out there. But it was something that I think when the story came out, I knew would grab people's attention. Ayahuasca's in the Andes, though, right? That's not in the desert. Well, I mean, it's happening all over the world. These sort of quote-unquote shamans are sort of billing themselves as this and offering these retreats using the the drug, which comes from the Andes, um, but, Mm -hmm. you know, for their own kind of personal gain. Because that's that's, that's DMT, right? That's dimethyltryptamine? Uh, Actually, it comes from a a plant in the Andes. Chemical? Like the active chemical. It's like how mescaline is the active chemical in peyote. Exactly. Like, uh, that's as I read the the teachings of Don Juan a little bit ago, which is about... Ah. The anthropology student, Carlos Castaneda, I think, mm-hmm. uh, meeting uh, a yucky Indian, a Mexican man named Don Juan, and he's a shaman, and he, uh, uh, among other things, gives a mescaline. It's a very trying experience because there's these very uh, ritual ways of it. Like, he can't drink any water, so he ends up throwing up and then seeing a dog's nervous system, I think, at one point, as you do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and part of my my research also was I went to a shamanic practitioner here in Vancouver. Her name's Melanie O'Leary. She works out of this place called Soul Sanctuary. Ah. And it was a fascinating time I had with her. And she sat down with me and she said, you know what? I had this really crazy dream. And I didn't tell her I was an author doing research for my book. <laughs> but she said, yeah, I had this dream about this cult, but it wasn't a new age cult. And then she also mentioned a couple of different things that were actually in the story and she hadn't even met me or knew anything about the book and it was one of those you know twilight zone moments where i was like i'm a convert i'm a convert (laughs) (laughs) and it's like oh that's some powerful stuff there (laughs) and um with uh with the book uh one of the advertised influences on it has been described as uh stephen king and jillian flynn we were talking about this before uh, how does that what like what were your influences uh writing this like in terms of the writing process in terms of the story you end up uh, producing yeah ultimately i've mentioned those two writers more as a way for people who don't know my work to kind of you know wrap, wrap their heads around it in terms of oh i can expect x or i can expect y and the story isn't necessarily you know following any kind of their formats or using any of their influences but it's more of so people can understand where the story is coming from you know, that way, you know, you're not like getting getting a YA fantasy. It's know? like uh, if if you like so and so, you'll yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's but, like later in the show, we're gonna say if you liked. Um, uh, okay, I should know this, Mr. Foot's other leg. You're gonna like Nell Gwynn. Sure. I mean, it's Actually, it's like well anything. It's like, it's like I'm a huge music lover. So when people say, "Oh, it's like Jane's Addiction," or it's like the Mars Volta, then it's like, "Oh, those are two references that I can wrap my hand around." And I kind of know what I'm going to expect. If this was an album, what kind of album would it be like? Oh, definitely be like the Mars Volta, Deloused in the Comatorium. <laughs> it's a real wild ride. That was a very quick comparison. I know. That was a very, like, matter of fact, this is it. Well, it's a very uh, it's a very powerful album. I don't know if you know much about the band. or Not really, no. No, okay. Well, they're basically, it was two members that came from the ashes of At The Drive-In, which was this post-punk emo band from El Paso. And they create their first um, album was Deloused in the Comatorium. That's it's an evocative title. Is it like sort of a desert rock kind of thing? Is it like? A... No, it's actually a really interesting story. There's like a, a, a there's actually a narrative to the album where this guy finds this um, he uh, he wants to kill himself, so he kills himself, but then he's still alive. And then the whole album is this journey in his head as he's going through like debating whether he wants to live or not. And in the end, he wakes up, realizes he hasn't killed himself. And then finally does kill himself because he realizes he wants to die, which is really heavy, I know. But um, <laughs> I'm assuming drugs were involved in that. Well, I, I, yeah, they were quite vocal about their drug usage, but it's um, it. yeah. no, it's just one of those like, sort of quirky independent albums that is just just resonated. Let's we'll check it out. That's that's interesting because you know we uh, well in podcasting, you know, they're sort of dealing with the sh- long shadow of Joe Rogan which is in turn a long shadow of endorsement for psychedelics <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, and, and MMA, which I, I would probably rather have the psychedelics personally. <laughs> like, yeah, given a choice. Jeez, which, which one would you given go Given a choice. Like yeah. just, just in terms of, of, of brain damage, I think, I think the psychedelics are just a better move. But, you know, getting back to the references for the book, you know, at the end of the day, when I look at the writers that I've always enjoyed, they don't really fit neatly into any one genre box. And these days, with the publishing industry the way it is, it feels like everyone's kind of getting crammed into these slots, which I think sometimes is unfair because sometimes a good story is just a good story. So, 
you know, as a writer, you're kind of beholden a little bit to to do what the industry is demanding. But at the same time, I look at stories that someone like Nick Hornby has written. Yeah. And you know, how do you slot those books into one genre? Like High Fidelity is one of my favorite stories. That's a gr- that's one of my favorite movies too. Yeah, exactly. But that or like a Brett Easton Ellis, like where do you put American Psycho? Yeah, that's a, that's a long. The weirdest thing about Brett Easton Ellis is his friendship with Donna Tart. To me. Oh, really? Yeah. Because the secret history is dedicated to him. Oh, I didn't know that. Because he wrote Rules of Attraction the same time she was writing that, and there's a reference to it in Rules of Attraction. Two of the least alike books published in the same decade. I'm going to have to go back and reread my copy. I don't remember it being there. It's like, oh, those weird classics kids going off in the woods. <laughs> just just of all the, the terrifying things that happen in the background of uh, of Rules of Attraction. Yeah, one of the many things, right? That's So would you say, uh, do you have a favorite writer? Do you have a favorite book? Uh, you know, that's like asking my favorite song. It's almost impossible. Right. But, like, I mean, I do love three. The Executioner Song by Norman Mayer, who started The Village Voice. It's just an astounding story. It's just still sticking with me. Uh, I do love American Psycho because I think, you know, Patrick Bateman was just the most alluring protagonist. <laughs> and I love The Outsiders. I've probably read that book about a hundred times. Missy Hinton? Oh, yeah. God. That, that, that's, for, for a book that's so specifically dated, that's got a lot of stay in power. Well, I, mean, I was a teenager when I read that story, and of course, growing up in suburban Tawasson, I thought, like, what is this world? Socias, greasers, you know, knife fights. Like, it was so out of my element. I thought this this can't even exist, but I guess it did. Well, it's, uh, I remember there was an interview with S.E. Hinton that I read, and um, she said that, uh, this was in the 80s at the time, uh, that the two groups remain uh, because, like, it's like, her example in the 80s was punks and preps. Mm-hmm which is a very 80s example to have. Of course. <laughs> but you can probably do it in any place where there's like enough of a, because it's a class thing, really. It, that's a lot of what it's about. So you can sort of draw that. I don't know if that subculturally is present now, because I don't, I, I'm a little out of touch with the subcultural thing, as my uh, demeanor and clothing would attest. But like it's, um, it's like, it's one of those things where it's got, the characters are people you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's got a lot of stay in power. Uh, before we go, I do want to touch on uh, your career as a TV producer because that is um, – are you still working in that capacity or is that – Absolutely. Been... I do mostly television commercials now. And uh, what kind of work have you done in that? Has that sort of brought you down this path or is this something you're pursuing separately? No. it's I've been doing television production for 17 years. I've done mostly TV commercials, but I took sort of a five-year hiatus and went into TV, like actual series and movies. So we did stuff for MTV, for the Cooking Channel, Lifetime, etc. And what, what kind of work was that exactly? How, like in terms of what does producing entail? Or? Yeah, or like did you, have a, did, you have a, did you have a particularly weird story from it? Like I'm always interested in these uh, things that happen, you know, <laughs> while you're working. Like you know how life is something that happens while you're doing other things. Oh, no. All I can say is when I was actually working on our, our, our MTV show, even though it was a docuseries where you don't have anything actually scripted, it kind of made me realize how much I was yearning for to doing something of my own work where – you know, finding sort of a longer narrative to, to be responsible for. And that sort of first inspired me to start thinking about writing because I was told I should be a writer my whole life and never really sat down to do it. Was it a similar set of skills you found yourself employing or was it an entirely different exercise? 
Uh, very similar. I mean, you, you need a lot of discipline, obviously, and just finding the time to do it. And um, it really kind of helps because when you do television, there's there's specific beats. You're always looking at, you know, what's the arc of characters? And that just naturally translates into the written form as well. You got to spend a lot of time with yourself, too. Yes, and I do that quite a bit. <laughs> you know, that's that's the part that's always scary to me personally because, you know, reflection is terrifying. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the scariest thing, and this is the thing I'll leave you with, is that as a writer, other writers out there will know this, but when you, you have an idea of what your story is, but when you start writing it and these characters start living and breathing and interacting, they take over. And I actually had a completely different ending involved for the story, but one of the main characters made me change the ending of it. And I loved him, and I hated him for it. <laughs> you know, now I'm scared of Brett Easton Ellis because you've been talking about American Psycho this whole time, and that's really in-depth. Well, you can only imagine what his interior world is like. Apparently his dad, his Bateman was based on his dad. Yeah, well, it's, it's such a great story. I mean, it's, it actually was, to me, the first kind of novel that addressed uh, mental illness without it really being about mental illness. Uh, it's, it's a, just, I can just imagine, because he said that when it was released. I think his dad was still alive. And it was like... Yeah, he's probably going, thanks, son. Thanks for the <laughs> reference. So, son, yeah. hear about this book here. Uh, can I give one little shout-out quickly? Sure. Or one little question to Certainly. your, to let's, your uh, let's, listeners? Certainly. Uh, end on that. Uh, my second book is in the oh, final stages of third draft, and I've, I have some beta readers who are going to be reading it before it goes to the editor. So if any of your listeners want to be part of the beta reader program, they can find me online, andreafazenfeld.com. Shoot me an email, and I'd love to hear your feedback. All right. That yeah. sounds like a great offer. Um, I heard it. Check out Completion. Check out the beta reader uh, program on the aforementioned link. Um, Andrew, it was great to have you in the studio. Thank you very much. And we'll take a quick uh, PSA break, and then we shall return with our final flurry of reviews. Uh, I'm still Jake Clark. This is still the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC. Cheers. Pinoy Pride Vancouver Society presents Liberation, the first LGBTQ Philippine X Pride art celebration on Saturday, June 16th at XY Lounge, featuring performances by Kimortal, Naomi King, Romeo Reyes, Well, Jade Soul, and Mevian Hauser, and works by Politique, Mildred Grace German, Clark Pond, Jose Luis Reyes, Cesarina Bravo Tabopo, and These Bodies Between Us. Check out Pinoy Pride on Facebook for more information. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. And uh, you heard the last PSA. The Rio is still, as of yet, unsaved. So, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, you got to uh, check that out. Do what you can. Chip in. Throw in a few shekels, as the case may be. Um, God knows they need it, and God knows they're worth it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of film. <laughs> so, uh, I went to go see this uh, kind of film 
bundle of this Argentinian director, Lu, uh, Lucia Martel. Uh, she has done some really interesting kind of movies, and I went to go watch one of her new movies, uh, Zama. Um, I think that she's a very interesting director, but I don't think I very much like this movie in particular. I'm told that it's uh, a lot of her movies are rather um, atmospheric. Yeah. Which, if you flip the context of that, could go as slow. Yeah, it it is really good. Like, she can make, like, scenes so beautiful and kind of feel, like, removed from reality. The way that she kind of frames her characters and the way that she uses nature to show the kind of unrealistic balance that this person is in like okay so let me first explain what Zama is about first before I kind of get to why it's kind of interesting the way that she uses nature and the character to remove himself from it I'm guessing it's about a guy named Zama yes it is a guy named Zama so this is a period piece Um, and Zama is this Spanish colonizer in South America uh, he is stationed there for about a couple of, like, maybe a year or two. Um, and he's stationed there while his wife and apparently his children are back in Spain. And so he's trying desperately to get a promotion and get back home to Spain. And he's just having to get through just, like, all the kind of bureaucracy of it. Um what I liked about this film is that they never shied away from, like, not addressing, fi- like, fully the kind of horrors that the colonizers kind of did to the indigenous people in South America. Genocide, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and, like, a, a slew of other things. Um, so they don't shy away from, like, like kind of subtly say calling it out but it's just it it can be kind of like really weird to follow this kind of colonizer man and try to because like when you're watching a character you're like supposed to kind of sympathize with them and that's the reason why you like care about their journey but it's just really really hard to follow this guy because you're just like oh my god he's the worst and i hate him and i really don't want to know his story like like how bad is he like is he because it it seems from the material i've seen that he's incompetent but is he like an actual he participator in the depopulation of the andes (laughs) he there's like um there's a scene where he is spying on the indigenous women and the um the uh African slaves that they have um, washing themselves and one of them goes to go find out who's like peeping on them and he like tries to run away she like grabs him and then she and then he like smacks like her her like really really hard and like there's nothing she can really do and it's just like it's not that he you don't see it a lot that he's a huge participator of it but it's also like he's not saying no so it's just like 
weird. It's just a really weird thing to like follow this guy. It, it, well, considering the time, that would be yeah. pretty characteristic. Yeah, I I know, but it's just Not like good, but... but now it's like hard to like kind of try to like sympathize or like try to understand this character. It's like I don't want to understand this character. But like I but yeah, so it it did feel at times but apparently that's kind of like what she likes to do is like that she likes to make movies to kind of like it's not what you're going to want but it's like an interesting kind of dive that's an interesting choice so that's we before the screening of this before we had the screening actually a UBC film teacher i forgot her name um she did kind of uh, a talk about the movie itself and the director, Lucia Mattel. Yeah. So she kind of talked about her and, like, what she thinks is the kind of meaning of it. Hmm. That's interesting. So it was unpacked a little bit. Yeah. Well, that'd be, that'd be helpful. So if you're... Would you recommend it in any capacity? I think if you are already, like, really into very artsy, long films... I think that if you already have that kind of taste for it, I think that this is definitely, like, a good film that you would like. But I don't think it's something that is a great film to, like, bring someone who isn't kind of already into that into watching it. That's interesting because I would say almost the exact same thing about Leading Into the Wind. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's the Andy Goldsworthy documentary I kind of teased last episode. Um, it's, uh, it's a follow-up to a documentary called Rivers and Tides. Uh, and Andy Goldsworthy is a landscape artist who makes, um, we call some collaborations with nature. Uh, it's a very interesting look at his artwork because, like, he makes, uh, like, he wets leaves and puts them in shapes on things. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, that, but his works are designed to decay. Uh, one thing, there's a repeated shot of him lying on the ground before it's about to rain. So when it rains, he leaves the silhouette, but that's also quickly covered over. Um, and that is there's a lot of me- meditations on color and on uh the thing is that a lot of it is is more show than tell about the art which again is a documentary that fits but um it it honestly seems uh like it, it it's not really going to I was interested in it afterwards but I was also kind of unmoved it was kind of static in that way Mm. um and i I wouldn't say it was bad but if you're not already interested in it it's not gonna make you interested in it i don't think yeah um now nell gwynn on the other hand oh please tell me i want to know this nell gwynn so if you like mr foot's other leg go see nell gwynn you're gonna like it it's very similar as a play actually uh it's a it's also very (laughs) historical there's also a king who's a character now, do you know anything about the story of Nell Gwynn? I have no idea. Nell Gwynn uh, was, um, so I've already given you a recommendation to see it. Nell Gwynn was the mistress of King Charles II, one of uh, a few. Okay. Um, and she was uh, she was an actress, which I didn't know, actually. I knew she was, before that, she was a prostitute and an orange seller. And that's my understanding of how 
they met. She had some good lines to her. Um, one th- which is in it, this is in the play is, uh, but it's in a different form. Is as I heard it, the story was she's in a carriage at one point, and because this is a point anti-Catholic sentiment very high. This is right after Cromwell, a uh, lot of unrest. Charles is coming from France, so he's associated with the French ca- Catholics. Um, so they yell at her. She's a Catholic whore. She t- l- turns her head out. I am a Protestant whore. Thank you. <laughs> And then iconic move. <laughs> and she, she would, uh, and in this one, it's in a cabaret number. This is this shines a lot on her as an actress, which I didn't know. Uh, she would have been one of the first actual female actresses playing women oh, on wow. the stage, and that is a joke. There's a character in here called Kinnison, uh, and he is played by Kinnison, who's played by Brian Hinson, who is the guy who played all the female parts, and he's takes his acting very seriously, and that's very funny when he's on on there. Oh, the other line about her was actually not spoken by her. It was Charles. His last words were, uh, don't let my poor Nelly starve after he died. Yeah, he's a nice guy about that. Um, about that. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's the bit about the kings and what. Um, and the cast of this, there was a little bit of double casting in this show. It was a very well put together show. Um, you do get a good bit of music in it, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, Emmett Lee Stang in particular, who plays Charles Hart who was also one of her lovers, who was another actor. No, two Charlies. Oh, interesting. Um, she got a thing. He's, he does, like, this Spanish flamenco thing with the guitar. He's, he's very interesting. I was actually trying to practicing it a little bit afterwards. And uh, I do want to say Nell, who's played by Charlotte Wright, who's actually a UBC alumnus. Uh, Charlotte Wright really has the charisma to play this part. like, And the accent work is generally very good, especially from her. She's got this sort of light Cockney accent going. And... She does sell the personality down, like this sort of irreverent, cheeky, definite, um, self, de- definitely self-determined personality from someone who, you know, is kind of had a rough go of things, all things considered, and ends up pretty well. And uh, with that in mind, like, I, I really liked her um, in uh, just her performance in general was quite entertaining. And... Uh, like, uh, there were some uh, weaker uh, performances, um, but the, the in general, it was quite solid. It was actually interesting that, so there's some double casting with Lisa Udovenko as two of Charles' other mistresses, Lady Castlemaine and then Louise de Carouau, the latter having a lot of her lines in French, which is very good because <laughs> she, um, one, her French, to me anyway, my French is very rusty, came off very good, but I remember... Um, this is just my reference pool, but she makes a joke about, um, in French, about Nell being a comedian, which would have been at the time like a cabaret performer. Because uh-huh. a co- comedian, as we now know it, very different from what it meant up until about vaudeville. Because it was usually uh, just a guy, like a clown, sort of. And she said, Tous les comédiennes et prostituées. Like all the co- comedians are prostitutes. Um, and I and I may or may not have gone sort of voce. I'll leave Marion Davies out of it. <laughs> Weird bit of trivia there. Marion Davies was a famous silent film actress. She was very funny. She was known for comedies, but she was William Randolph Hearst's mistress for about twenty years. And if you've ever seen Citizen Kane, his when he puts his second wife in all these shows that she's really not suited for, that was a jab at um, Hearst putting Marion Davies in these heavy dramas that she just did not like, did not shine very well in. Um, 
and that but that was the thing she got a lot of flack for that in private circles because of her connection to Hearst. Um, and but it and it's also funny. She goes, "Oh, your men are very different. Your men pay." And I'm like, <laughs> "That is big talk from a French woman saying English men tend to pay for sex." Yeah, I've been reading Paris in 1918 to like Clemenceau was you know David Lloyd George's mistress wife and mistress sat together at his funeral. If that happened with Clemenceau, they'd have filled up half the church. Um. That's maybe just my opinion on showing through a little bit. Oh, John Dryden's a character, uh, which is kind of funny, uh, played by uh, Paul Ferencik, Ferencik, I think. Um, and that that's kind of funny because Dryden did plagiarize a lot from Shakespeare, did grab a lot. Of, and they make a joke about him basically pitching the Titanic, <laughs> the storyline of Titanic. Oh, my God, that sounds so There's good. a lot of in-jokes like that. It is kind of like Mr. Foote's other leg, but a lot less overpoweringly dense. It's, it's a lot more accessible. So if you like that, check it out. Uh, it's on at Jericho until the 24th. And uh, before we go, I do want to leave you with this. Um... Uh, the Bill Reed Gallery is currently doing an exhibition called Body Art, which is focusing primarily on Haida uh, tattooing. We were going to have them uh, interviewing uh, for, in for an interview last show, but technology failed us. So uh, if you can make it to the Bill Reed Gallery to check that out, that is uh, currently going. Oh, my God, that sounds so cool. I'm totally going now. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting to me because that's a form of art. That's a very specific form of art. I, like, I think we were mentioning this a little bit with theater and with other forms of very temporary art. And with tattooing, yeah, there's permanency in that you're going to have this for the rest of your life. But it's also skin art, and you, it's very weird to see how that's exhibited and what kind of art goes into it. Yeah, I think that and it's really kind of cool to use like the human body as a canvas because of the way that uh, our bodies will kind of accept the like the ink of the tattooing. Well, I I I couldn't get tattoos. I'm I'm not good with needles in any case and I just I couldn't sit still. Getting tattoos. You're getting tattoos? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Would do you mind sharing what any of those are? Um they're just uh um just kind of personal pieces to each of my family members that has like a certain like a uh, uh, memory that I have with them like uh, uh, yeah. with my little brother when the first time that me and him really got to know each other really well is when we both played uh, Bioshock if you ever played that video game I have yeah that's yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of um uh, what is it? A lot of, there's a oh yeah, Andrew Ryan is yeah. Anne Rand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I know what happens in it. Yeah, uh, but the main character in it has like the kind of uh, three chain on his wrist tattoos when you fight with him. I really yeah, he does. Um, so uh, I'm gonna get that tattooed for my brother. All right, that's yeah. that's interesting because I'm interested in that. Like it, it's it's a very semiotic choice it's like choosing a flag or an insignia yeah i i think that kind of tattoos are very an interesting part of art and i think that seeing it being accepted more is honestly really refreshing and nice well that's interesting Okay, so, yeah, check out Bill Reed. Yeah. And check out Nell Gwynn if you want to. Um, uh, we'll be uh, reviewing, uh, there's a movie. Oh, oh, quick, real quick thing. Uh, Georges Méliès. If you know who that guy is, you're going to get a lot out of this. If not, watch the video for Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight. Um, <laughs> in my opinion, the best music video of all time. I don't like Smashing Pumpkins, but I, I do like that video a lot. Um, he is having, there's a, well, he's dead. He's been dead for many, many, Méliès, not Billy Corgan. He's still alive. Uh, we'll say that's a good thing. Um, 
Melies is having a retrospective with a live orchestra at uh, the the museum. I, it's uh, it's in kits. It's a fascinating event. I just heard about that literally five minutes before the show started. Oh, wow. But seriously, check that out because that sounds like something that's kind of amazing. And I think that especially as a progenitor of film, of effects, like George Melier is one of those figures who's just inspiring. It's just what you can do with a lot of imagination and a lot of wherewithal because he was a stage magician. Like yeah. It's, it's kind of beautiful. Okay. Uh, this has been the Arts Report. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Eliana Sosa. And the Medicine Show, I believe, is right up after us. Cheers.